0: Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. And we will move into lighting our chalice together. The words are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice, light the of and together circle of community. And I'm going to ask you to take a deep breath. If you can put down what you're holding, I would urge you to do so. I'm going to ask you to breathe in, deeply and slowly, and to listen. Listen to the quiet of this new day. Listen to the breath as it moves in and out of the people around you. Listen for the beat of your own heart. Listen in the silence for possibility. Because right here, wisdom, love, depth, quiet, knowledge, hope, and compassion are all possible right here. Breathe and listen. We have entered a new month a month pregnant with possibilities, a new month filled with holidays, with holy days, a new month that asks us to think hard about moments that have changed the world, a month that asks us to think about what might yet be possible, a month that asks us to wait, wait for the turnings of the year that make all things new again. This is the month of Advent, of waiting with patience, and this is the month of miracles, of light in the darkness. Waiting, and living through the dark to welcome the light, this is a time of year that asks us to live now, not to rush ahead, but to enjoy this moment. Today, we're going to be focusing on a day that's commemorated all over the world, although in different, on different days in different places. In Japan, among Zen Buddhists, today is Bodhi Day, which is the day on which the Buddha gained enlightenment. We will tell the story of the Buddha in a little while, but at the moment, I want to offer you the words of Buddhist teacher Mitchell Ratner, who writes about Kshanti, growing our hearts, which is one of the teachings of the Mahayana tradition. Ratner writes, "Kshanti is often translated as patience or forbearance in the sense of willingness to wait or tolerating frustration. But Kishanti, inclusiveness goes beyond putting up with something. We can learn to reframe the frustration. And he continues with a story about his son. When he was about four years old, from time to time he would have a rough day. He yelled and screamed and did not appreciate any of the ways I tried to comfort him. If anyone else had acted like that at that time in my life, anger would have flooded me. But my connection with him was strong. I understood somehow that his behavior was almost always related to illness, hunger, or fatigue. I still acted to contain his behavior, but for the most part, I did it without anger. It was a remarkable discovery that I could do this. How do we grow our hearts? For me, with my son, the sense of close connection was certainly part of the process. This is a month of growing our hearts, opening ourselves to possibility and to connection. And hopefully that growing of heart is something that we do every Sunday, but today we're going to do it with a little bit more care and intentionality, which is to say... We are going to do this thing we do on Sunday mornings with more slowness and more patience, with space for where we are and where we might be in time. So my invitation to you this morning is to feel unhurried, to let yourself be in this time. We won't go any longer than we normally do, (laughs) but we're just going to go a little more slowly. We're going to be a little more patient and mindful together. So welcome to this morning of calm and slowness. To help us start, we're actually going to begin with our time for meditation and prayer and reflection. And this morning, we're going to engage in a somewhat extended silent meditation. As we begin this, I want to let you know that some of our youth who are spending this year learning about other faiths and visiting other houses of worship, are currently doing a sitting meditation themselves upstairs. That's how they're spending their time this morning. They're in their Buddhism section, and they are spending their time with Ralph Plesick doing meditation. And I love that resonance that as we're about to start doing that down here, they are up in a separate space, But sharing with us this common practice this morning. So I invite you to hold them in your thoughts as we move into our time. So please find a comfortable, as comfortable a way to be in your seat as you can. If closing your eyes feels good, do that. Otherwise, maybe pick a spot to focus your attention. Roll your shoulders back let them <laughs> drop unclench your jaw try to relax those muscles you can wiggle your fingers and toes try to loosen them a little bit and then find a comfortable way to hold your hands let your body sink into your seat yourself be in this moment. And I'm going to ask you to focus on your breath. As you breathe in, count to three in your mind. And then as you exhale, <coughs> Do so for a count of three as well. If three feels too long, drop it down to two. If it's too short, you can hold your inhales and exhales for longer. We want to make each breath slow and deep. Try not to think about anything but the breath moving in and out of your body. Notice where you feel the sensation of the breath most strongly. Perhaps in your nose or mouth as it moves in and out. Maybe you feel it in your chest as it rises and falls. maybe deep in your belly wherever you feel the breath focus on that spot (coughs) and keep your breath slow and deep if your mind wanders Gently bring it back to the breath moving in and out of your body. We sing a hymn here sometimes. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. Whatever you walked into this space with this morning, whatever the cares or thoughts or challenges or fears or hopes, put them aside for a moment. Focus on peace moving into your body with each breath. Focus on love flowing out with each breath. As we move into silence, keep your thoughts focused on your breathing, on the peace and love that move with each inhale and exhale. Deep breath. Pema Chodron, the Buddhist teacher who wrote the words of our reading this morning, tells a story that I want to share with you. She writes, One man decided to train in patience on his morning commute. He thought he was succeeding beautifully. He was patient when people cut in front of him. He was patient when they honked their horns. When he became anxious that the heavy traffic was going to make him late, he was able to relax with his agitated energy. He was doing great. Then he had to stop for a woman in a crosswalk. She was walking very slowly. The man sat there practicing patience, letting the thoughts go, and connecting with his restlessness as directly as he could. Suddenly, the woman turned, kicked his car, and started screaming at him. At that point, he totally lost his calm and started screaming back. Then he remembered hearing that in practicing patience, we see our anger far more clearly. He started breathing in for the woman and for himself. Here they were, two strangers, screaming at each other, and he felt the absurdity and tenderness of their situation. This story is offered in a reflection on patience, echoing our reading from earlier, and on how patience and anger are so often linked. That learning to sit with our big feelings, that's what we often call them with small children, big feelings, it's no less true for adults. Learning to sit with our big feelings is an act of courage because it asks us not to resolve or fix or give vent to or be overtaken by, our frustration or boredom or whatever it is. Learning to sit with our big feelings, to wait, to be patient, is about living in the present without being utterly at the mercy of it. Just because the traffic is bad or the woman starts screaming or someone honks, it doesn't mean that we have to let our feelings direct our external response. We can breathe, understand our own upset, and act differently than our initial response might push us to act. This is what um, Buddhist growing our heart business is about. The Kshanti that Mitchell Ratner talked about in our opening words. Growing our hearts is about being open to all of our feelings and thoughts, and the purpose of growing our hearts is to make them big enough to contain those thoughts and feelings without being overcome by them. It's being able to experience the woman kicking the car and screaming, to feel our anger rise up, but to be able to let it move through us without directing us to scream back. Growing our hearts and living with the kind of patience that Chodron talks about allows us to sit in the car breathing and offering our compassion and curiosity to that woman and to ourselves, rather than harsh words or shaming. Siddhartha Gautama, who came to be known as the Buddha, was a prince born over 2,500 years ago. He was wealthy and privileged, and at his father's bidding, he lived in an enclosed area, never going beyond the walls of his happy existence. And it was happy. Everything he could want was provided to him. His needs and desires were met, beauty and luxury surrounded him. But one day, he decided to leave the safety of his palace to see what the world was like. He found a way beyond the walls that had been built around him. And when he journeyed forth, he saw for the first time what life brings. He saw an old man, a sick man, and a dead body. Upon seeing these, Gautama's life was turned upside down. He was so disturbed by these encounters with what is real in life what awaits all of us, that he completely changes everything. At first he becomes a monk, but this doesn't seem to help him understand living and dying. He doesn't find the truth and meaning that he seeks. Then he becomes an ascetic, someone who lives a life of total austerity, completely in opposition to the life he lived in his palace. Right? He gives away everything, embraces a life of abject poverty, But in this, too, he can't find the meaning and the truth that he seeks. He goes on to find other teachers and try other methods that other people say are going to help him understand the human existence and the meaning of suffering. And after all this seeking and trying and failing to find the understanding he needs, he sits himself down under a Bodhi tree, which is not unlike a fig tree, in the town of Bodhgaya. And he sits there under this tree waiting for understanding to come. It's not a passive waiting, or an ignoring. He sits and he meditates and he focuses on suffering and what it means, and he encounters demons and he summons a deep strength to withstand them, and the end result is that Siddhartha Gautama finds enlightenment and comes to see that no extremes make sense. He becomes the Buddha and he develops something called the middle way, a life somewhere between utter poverty and obscene luxury, a life focused on letting go of extremes, of detaching from the impermanent trappings of life. And in his enlightenment, he finds that he no longer suffers from the pain caused by attachment to the transient things of this world, like health and wealth and more. The middle way that Gautama proposes has, at its core, four noble truths and an eightfold path. The four noble truths are dukkha, the idea that all life is suffering, samudaya, that suffering occurs because we cling to and desire things, niroda, that suffering can be escaped if we cease to desire, and maga that the Eightfold Path is the means to ceasing desire and ending suffering. And so the Eightfold Path instructs on ways to live—right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. Ultimately, all these instruct on cultivating not wealth or asceticism, but on cultivating compassion and peace harmony and gentleness, uncultivating focus and awareness, a commitment to moral and ethical behavior in the world. And through the practice of these eight behaviors and a deep understanding of the interconnections of all things and the impermanence of all things, one achieves enlightenment and one stops feeling the attachments and one can end suffering. Buddhism teaches through the life of the Buddha, through the Four Noble Truths and the Path to Enlightenment, a certain letting go, a releasing of our own belief in control and permanence. It's a letting go of our self-delusion that we can control everything and that the things we believe must always continue must indeed always continue. It teaches a kind of nimbleness of being that neither denies nor idolizes the trappings of human society and the human constructs around which so many of us build our lives. And Buddhism teaches these things because Buddhism recognizes at its core the fundamental impermanence of our human existence. We will all die. And Buddhism understands our attachment to impermanent things to be the root of suffering. It recognizes the world that we live in, but asks us to live in it more openly, honestly, compassionately, and calmly. But the work of letting go isn't actually easy. The work of understanding deeply connection, transience of human life, that isn't easy work. The Buddha experiences enlightenment, light in the darkness of his mind and soul after his life-changing experience. But this miracle of his enlightenment wasn't a passive or a simple thing. It took patience and it took courage. It is not going to come as a surprise to you that I am not a Buddhist. But many of these noble truths resonate for me. The idea that our attachments to things we can't control is a source of suffering that seems pretty spot on to me. And I am pretty terrible at cultivating non-attachment. I try. I'm also pretty terrible at the kind of meditating and focus that the Buddha exemplifies. For all the silences we keep here, I'm still learning to breathe consciously and deeply when it matters out there. I continue to need a lot of work, and part of my journey is the need to work on my patience. And patience, as our readings this morning suggest, is so integral to the kind of non-attachment that allows us to achieve the kind of enlightenment that can end at least some measure of the suffering we experience as humans that live and die. And so I want to take a moment for us to think more deeply about this question of patience, which is so alive at this time of year when we long for the holidays to come or we dread them, when we long for the light to return when the very holidays we celebrate embrace waiting. The Buddha waited under the Bodhi tree. Mary and Joseph wait for the baby to come. The Maccabees wait and hope for the oil to last. The world waits for the the sun to arrive again. December is in some ways defined by a call to patience. Pema Chodron writes that patience is not ignoring. In fact, patience and curiosity go together. You wonder, who am I? Who am I at the level of my neurotic patterns, Who am I at the level beyond birth and death? If you wish to look into the nature of your own being, you need to be inquisitive. Patience isn't, she says, complete passivity. It's not accepting what is without thought or care. It requires being curious. And She contrasts patience with aggression—not necessarily aggression as you might classically think of it but aggression as defined by any big feeling that asks us to immediately act in an attempt to resolve or solve. So aggression is this drive to shut things down, to close spaces in, to rigidify things, and patience is about asking questions, creating spaciousness, opening doors, not closing them. And what Buddhism teaches is that if we can have spaciousness with ourselves and others, we can discover that behind our reactions, there is often the pain of attachment. And if we can discover that, if we can know that beneath our frustration and anger is pain caused by attachment, we can work on ending it. Ending the attachment, the pain, the reactionary behavior that often only makes things worse. Again, from children. As soon as you discover that behind your pain is something you're holding on to, you are at a place that you will frequently experience on the spiritual path. After a while, it seems like almost every moment of your life you're there, at a point where you realize you actually have a choice. You have a choice whether to open or close, whether to hold on or let go, whether to harden or soften. That choice is presented to you again and again and again, you have a choice, you can let go, which basically means you connect with the softness behind all that hardness. Perhaps each one of us has made the discovery that behind all the hardness of resistance, stress, aggression, and jealousy, there is enormous softness that we're trying to cover over. She concludes, aggression usually begins when someone hurts our feelings. The first response is very soft, but before we even notice what we're doing, we harden. So we can either let go and connect with that softness, or we can continue to hold on, which means that the suffering will continue. So I think a lot about that, the hardness and the softness, and the ways that we are conditioned not only to mask our pain, but to harden ourselves against the sufferings of others. The work of uncovering what is actually below our easy anger or our ready frustration asks a lot of us It asks us to be willing to go deep in ways we often aren't trained to do. And that's why patience requires great courage. And I come back to the story of the Buddha. How many of us would give up a life of luxury in order to pursue truth and meaning? How many of us, upon failing time after time to find enlightenment, would give it another go sitting under a tree? How many of us would commit ourselves so fully and so completely to wisdom and freedom and depth that we would sit under that tree day after day, experiencing all manner of physical and psychological discomfort? How many of us could look the challenges of this being human in the face and rather than running scared, sit and confront them in our meditation day in and day out until we made sense of them? And I'm not saying we should do any of those things, I'm just saying it required a lot of patience and a lot of courage. The Buddha had to be gentle with himself because he kept trying and he kept failing. He had to be compassionate with the people around him whose journeys were different, or whose commitments were different, (coughs) whose teachings didn't serve him. He had to have conviction that would not shake even in the face of demons. He had to be bold enough to sit with the very realities that shook the foundations of his life and not run from them. Patience and courage. And what Pema Chodron says is that patience is a kind of synonym for loving kindness. Loving kindness for yourself and for others. Patience says that anger you feel, it's okay. Don't give in to it, but ask it why it's come around. That frustration... Don't try to shut it down, but don't let it overrule your compassion. Inquire what it's up to. That love or hate or whatever it is, don't shut the door. Invite it in for tea and have a curious chat. Don't rush to end it or deny it or push it away or act on it. Just be patient with it. Have the courage to sit with it. There's a Jalaluddin Rumi poem that I think of often this time of year. It's about welcoming guests, and it goes like this. This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still... Treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. The principle here is clear. Have the patience and the courage to let in what comes, even as you don't allow it to rule you cultivate space enough in your own heart, grow your heart enough to handle whatever comes. And indeed grow your heart enough not only to handle your own emotions but others. Ratner talks about the big emotions of his four-year-old son and how in response to those he could speak and act without anger. He surmises that this is because of the intense connection of love. Love allows him to connect deeply, and deep connection enables him to remain open to the feelings and thoughts and actions of his child. And what a world we would live in if we could offer that level of non-reactionary response to each other. Imagine all the challenges that would be eliminated if we could come from a place of wide-open, well-grown hearts that are curious and brave and patient and filled with loving-kindness rather than small and mean and aggressive. Imagine if, for ourselves and others, we could be grateful for whatever comes, understanding emotions and thoughts and interactions as tools, teachers, guides toward a deeper and more connected and more compassionate living. Welcoming that screaming woman would not be screaming back, but compassionately wondering what brought her to that moment. Welcoming our anger or grief or boredom and wondering what brings us there. Waiting. Waiting with questions and thought and care and focus, but waiting just the same. What miracles of deep knowing of light in the darkness might we create by waiting? This time of year, I love to watch the animated How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Anyone else? My children do, too. And one was telling me the other day with great excitement that the Grinch hated Christmas maybe because his shoes were too tight, but no, it wasn't really that. It was because his heart was too small. But his heart grew. His heart could grow. He was so excited. And maybe some of you remember what made his heart grow. He steals Christmas from the Who's down in Whoville, right? But instead of accusing each other or getting angry about the missing presents or the lack of a feast, the Who's hold hands and sing. They connect to each other despite or through or in the face of their disappointment or sadness or anger. They show the Grinch, albeit unwittingly, that love and connection breed curiosity, patience, and courage. And as a result, his heart grows. The miracle of the Buddha's enlightenment wasn't that it happened or that it came after so many false starts. The miracle of the Grinch's heart that grew three sizes isn't that it happened or that it came after he enacted such meanness. The miracle, I think, in both cases was the persistence of the human or Grinchy or Huvillian heart. The patience and the courage to be open. Chodron reminds us that the path of developing loving kindness and compassion is to be patient with the fact that you're human and you make mistakes. The miracle is that in spite of mistakes, in spite of roadblocks and deeply held false narratives and wild misunderstandings, we humans have an unbelievable tenacity and an unbelievable capacity for change. In the face of darkness, aggression, rigidity, anger, pain, and suffering, we light candles, we offer kindness, we adapt, we love, we find and make meaning, we grow our hearts. Over and over again, after so many heartbreaks, we keep being patient and courageous, and we can connect, and we can love, and we can grow. And that, I think, is the promise of this season. That through the dark, we come to the light, and that that very truth is a miracle unto itself. May this season bring you many opportunities to exercise patience and courage and loving kindness with yourself and with others, and may you know the miracle of your own growing heart. So may it be. Please remain standing and join in the words for extinguishing the chalice. They're in your order of service. We extinguish this flame, but may the light of truth and the energy of action burn bright in our hearts until we are together again. May your heart open and may you be filled with loving kindness. May you be peaceful and at ease, well and whole. Go in peace.